The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. We've got a blockbuster show for you, of course, on a day of blockbuster data. Uh, you're watching Squawk Box with Arabina Gamede and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Remarkably resilient, the IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva says the global economy is holding up as she delivers her annual meeting curtain raiser speech, telling our very own Jumana that, uh, well, she has this advice for central bankers. First, continue to be vigilant. We cannot afford to lose the fight against inflation. Second, be data dependent. Third, communicate your intentions clearly. Well, it's the hugest bit of data in any calendar month, isn't it? Um, we're all data driven now, so the next major test for Wall Street, well, the spotlight turning today's non-farm payrolls report. Analysts expecting a, a slight deceleration uh, from the month before as investors look for clues on the Fed's next steps. European leaders gather in Granada, pledging more support for Ukraine as the EU summit kicks off. European Parliament President Roberto Metolas urges allies to step up, telling CNBC the bloc can't do it alone. The EU remains the number one supporter, both militarily and financially, for Ukraine, but there's no denial that we need our transatlantic allies. Uh, we're confident, I could use the word, with caution, uh, that President Biden will continue on the track in order to, to live up to the commitments made. And ExxonMobil is reportedly in advanced talks to buy pioneer natural resources in a deal worth as much as $60 billion as the U.S. energy giant wades deeper into the shale space. And Metro Bank shares, while well, they plunged on reports, the UK Challenger Bank is looking to raise £600 million in capital or sell a significant chunk of its mortgage book. Right, welcome. We've got so much for you. Let's just dive straight in. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva is warning of anemic growth over the next five years. Telling CNBC, she actually told the lady sitting next to me, Jumana, uh, that the recovery is slow and uneven. The aforementioned Jumana joins us now. Well, do you know what? I will take anemic growth given the alternative, which I fear is a lot worse. But your interview went into all of these areas. Yeah, we did. So this is uh, back on the curtain raiser speech that she gave in Abidjan. This is the signature speech that they give before the annual meetings start. Of course, next week is going to be dominated by those meetings in Marrakesh which itself was a big decision given the tragic yes. earth earthquake that we had a couple of weeks ago. So the reconstruction efforts is still ongoing there. Yesterday was just the start of the, the meetings, and this is the way it's done. Typically, the managing director gives one of these curtain raiser speeches and highlights what is going to be on the program for next week. And so typically, it's a way to take stock of how the global economy is doing. The IMF will come out with policy recommendations, some attempts at multilateral solutions. And we can talk perhaps a little bit more about that later. But let me just I start with the global economy. It's a big deal. It's a big deal yeah, going yeah, into yeah. this meeting, bigger, bigger topics of IMF reform. But let me just start with the global economy. And I think the theme going into next week is this idea of divergence, the fact that there has been a recovery since the pandemic, but it has been uneven and not equally distributed. Yeah. 
And she highlights very clearly that the countries that are doing much better are the likes of the U.S., India, for example. But the rest of the world, China, recovery has disappointed, lower mm -hmm. than they thought. Uh, EM countries is still 5% below pre-pandemic trends. Yep. And then low-income countries, which are probably the worst off hit, are the ones who are sitting with limited fiscal room, high levels of debt, higher interest rates, less wiggle room to spend on all of these other bigger themes like the, the, the transition, health, climate uh, resistance, adaptation, etc. Uh, and those countries are still sitting at around 6.5% below pre-pandemic levels. So the major theme of these upcoming meetings is one of divergence. So I caught up with the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gordieva, and I asked her how she would describe global growth right now. resilience of the world economy has been remarkable. We have avoided recession that we so much feared may be coming our way uh, this year. And uh, we see that uh, consumer demand remains quite strong in most countries. Labor markets are tight, but this recovery is slow and uneven. We looked at the impact of scarring from the two shocks. $3.7 trillion lost. More importantly, divergence, how these losses are being distributed. The US is the only large economy that has fully recovered. Uh, Eurozone, 2% below their pre-COVID trend. Uh, emerging markets, 4 5%. Low-income countries, 6% below pre-pandemic trend. And when we look into the future, what we see is anemic growth. We project growth at 3% on average over the next five years. Before the pandemic, it was 3.8% on average in the previous uh, decade. When you frame the numbers like that, what stands out to me is the huge divergence we're seeing between advanced economies and also low-income countries. Why is it so pronounced? The divergence is, is driven by a multiplicity of factors. Number one, how much fiscal space you have. Uh, advanced economies, they put in the equivalent of 28% of GDP in support to their people and their businesses, low-income countries, 2%. Uh, secondly, how impacted you are from the high energy and food prices. Uh, low-income countries, just by the virtue of, of being relatively poor, they get, they get hit dramatically. And then comes the strength of institutions and policies. And we see within the low-income countries also difference. Some, those that build strong fundamentals, are actually performing better. Countries like Cote d'Ivoire or Senegal. Those that have been uh, drifting into coups and political instability, uh, like Niger and Sudan and Burkina Faso, they're in a very difficult uh, place. And the last point is debt. How much you are burdened by borrowing with interest rates up and dollar strong, meaning local currencies depreciate, 
this burden of debt is becoming unbearable uh, for a very large number of countries. 15% of low-income countries are already hit. Another 35-40% are close to that uh, place. What do we need? Well, we need countries to do the right thing, strengthen your policies, build reforms to last, and we need the international community to stand by them. At the IMF, uh, we, we have done unthinkable things over the last three years. We have injected $1 trillion through special drawing rights and, and lending into the world economy. And we have particularly targeted for support low-income countries. We are going now to Marrakesh. There, we want to make sure we have this strength for them. So really fascinating to speak to the managing director around these annual meetings in Marrakesh. Uh, the statistics are quite interesting. She's saying that global growth, while has been more resilient than we anticipated at the beginning of the year, yeah. is not quite up to levels that we were at before. They're forecasting 3% for next year. Pre-pandemic, average growth was around 3.8%. So we have come a long way. There is this subject of economic scarring. Remember, we spoke about that during the pandemic. Just some things are not able to get back to where they were before simply because businesses have shut down. Uh, the other big topic, of course, is what I spoke about, the divergence, low-income countries. And this is a major theme going into the meetings next week. We can talk about you know, individual countries, and perhaps we'll talk more about that on the show. But I think one of the other major themes is the number of countries that are going through debt restructurings right now. And there are holdups. Sri Lanka is a very good example of that, where the multilateral institutions want to get to an agreement with, with Sri Lanka. They're willing to give them extra financing assistance, but they can't do it because China is holding out. And China is key to these bigger IMF reform discussions. So how, much, how, how much is she saying then that a lot of the growth or the possible growth in all these countries is actually fully dependent and everyone kind of working together, because that's, yeah. that's probably not going to happen again, though, is it? I mean, that, we're not going to get to Before that time Before Shimon answers, let me say something which I agree with you about, and I think you share the scepticism. I'm, I'm going to say this because I think multilateralism is broken. Mm, I think yeah. the Washington yeah. consensus is broken. I think the G20 is broken. Mm. And I think, actually, mm. even before it starts, the expanded mm. BRICS is yeah. broken. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. That's a whole series of statements. <laughs> yeah. You tell me what yeah. you think. Well, of the I fact. think, you know, I think there are many people out there who share your view. And uh, the fact that you had notable absence of leaders at G20, yeah. not least President Xi himself, who's the center of all of these discussions, I think is quite a big point. But, you know, the IMF is an attempt for us to find some form of, of common path, common ground when dealing with these pressing issues that all of the countries around the world are facing. To your point, um, the, I've attended you know, the last couple of IMF meetings and there was an entire chapter the last time around in April devoted to this topic which they call geoeconomic fragmentation. And so I brought that up throughout the course of the interview and I said to what extent is that affecting China's prospects here? Because we talk about China's you know, role in the global economy but clearly it is also being impacted by geopolitical tensions with the US, the trade barriers that have gone up, export restrictions, etc. And she said this is a real matter of concern for us and their estimates, and now Steve is um, going to smile at me, but uh, they estimate that geoeconomic fragmentation can impact global GDP by a range of 0.2% up to 8%. Oh, it's quite a big, it's quite a big range. It's a big, it's a, you, know, you could drive a bus through that, we would you say, really in, in, in our banking I, I time. But, agree, but I think, you know, it is exactly 
the more you put up, the more there's fragmentation, the more yeah. costly trade is, yeah. the more costly trade is, the more inflationary it is, the more inflationary it is, that all has ramifications of monetary tightening. So that's a big key for that. Thank you for joining us nice and early. I know you've got your own show to prepare for as well, but you're also uh, going to indulge uh, our viewers by having you back in the seven hour and the eight hour as well. Lovely. So thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated <laughs> and enjoy the conversation. Right, for more on Jumana's interview with the IMF MD, Gorgieva, and how she says restructural reforms in Germany are a must. How about picking out Germany? Interesting. Uh, check out CNBC.com. Now, coming up on the show, the first witnesses take to the stand in the Sam Bankman-Fried crypto fraud trial. We'll bring you a report from outside the lower Manhattan courtroom. Plus, I can see in my offset uh, that uh, Silver is standing by live in Granada. European leaders gathering in that magnificent region as they reiterate their support for Ukraine. We will cross live to Silvia, who will bring us her interview with the European Parliament President, Roberta Metzola. That is a first on CBC. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. So the market picture across the United States has been fairly interesting this week. And I mean, we ended up closing the day yesterday just marginally off uh, by closing in the red then by the end of the trading day. It is highly said to be a day where we look towards the jobs market, right? The unemployment numbers out on that front. And Steve will unpack exactly the expectations and permutations of uh, the numbers later today. But that non-farm payrolls number anticipated out later today will be the driving factor. And that's perhaps brought in a little bit of a sideways movement then for the market as we saw, yes, marginally down across a lot of these, but still factoring in that there could be a few changes. Of course, bond deals have been the interesting factor there coming off what were those 16-year highs as well, which is what we saw a little bit earlier this week. So that picture is very interesting to kind of look at as well. But overall, the S&P is actually uh, quite interesting there because that's on pace for five straight weeks of losses. That's the first time since May last year that it's actually done that. NASDAQ is up around half a, uh, 51 points or 0.51 points, should I say, on pace for a second straight week of gains, unless today, of course, does see that uh, go down quite extensively then. Dow Jones 1.16% down week to date on pace for a third straight negative week. So we could see some negativity still filter through there. Energy, the worst performing sector. Of course, we have seen the oil price there drop off quite considerably too. Here your treasuries then, as I said, falling down from those 16-week highs that we saw. Uh, even the 10-year moving towards that 48 mark that we saw it hit a little bit early on. The question was whether it would be hitting that 5% mark and further on. So dropping off just a little bit from that mark, but now 4.723. 
uh, the, the two-year is still sitting above that 5% mark uh, at this time of the trading day. Of course, we are still looking at how that's going to affect things across the board. On to your dollar crosses then. Well, uh, the dollar has actually retreated yesterday, retracing some of that pullback and tracking the pullback that we saw in those treasury yields as well then. So you are seeing a little bit of weakness for sterling and euro, but it's really that dollar strength that has perhaps come through, even if it is only just marginal in this picture right now. Dollar yen, 148.78. We thought that touching of 150 would mean that there's some intervention at play there. Clearly none doing at this point in time. But of course, a few worries could certainly still be in play when it comes to that yen uh, picture then. It had hit its weakest level since October 2022. Steve. Superwork. Okay, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly says the need for further Federal Reserve action may recede, may recede if financial conditions remain tight. There's a point here, isn't there? Fed policymakers have already said um, that actually they hope that the tightening of the credit markets will do a lot of their work for them. This is a, a reiteration of the previous comments. Uh, this, as the US jobs market shows signs of cooling. Again, I'm going to pick apart this read. I think it's showing some signs of cooling. It's also some signs of being incredibly hot. Treasury yields hovering around their highest levels in more than a decade. In a statement, Daly said a cooling labour market and easing inflation would let the Fed hold interest rates steady and, quote, let effects of policy continue to work. Again, I'm going to make the point. There's a lot of assumption in there. Is the labour market cooling? Uh, the latest U.S. employment data once again pointed to a stubbornly robust jobs market. That is exactly my point. Initial weekly jobless claims came in at 207,000 for the week ending September 30th. That is up just 2,000 on the week. Continuing claims came in just below the estimates at 1.66 million. Investors are bracing for today's non-farm payrolls figures out of the U.S. with a cooler report potentially leading to the end of the Fed's hiking cycle. Analysts expect uh, non-farm payrolls to increase by 170,000 with the unemployment rate estimated to hold steady uh, for the month at 3.7%. We'll be discussing the state of the U.S. labor market in the next hour with one of the best guests we get on this, uh, I have to say. Uh, that is ADP's chief economist, Neela Richardson. In the meantime, another brilliant guest, Bryn Jones, head of fixed income at Rathbones. Uh, Bryn, are you in Oxted these days? I thought you were a bit south of that. Uh, yeah, not far from there, yeah. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've moved uh, about two months ago, yeah. Oh, OK, because I could have picked you up on the way in. You didn't have to do it from home, my friend. You know that I come past your door. <laughs> right, Bryn, more importantly than that, um, let me pick apart those Mary Daly comments as well, because um, the truth of the matter is, a lot of us, including you, have been watching for a long time the tightening of credit to see whether it will do the Fed's work for uh, them as well. Just unpack that concept as well, and whether that's happening or not. Nice to see you. Yeah, good. Yeah, great to see you. Uh, see you guys again. Um, yeah, I do think rates are topping out a little bit, to be honest. And and the reason is is um, a few things. I think we've got like a two or three, four months of this possible discussion. Like, are we nearing the end? And the reason is, you, there's some there's some charts that I've been looking at, and and, and data that historically has always indicated to me that are kind of nearing that point in particular the senior loans officer survey which has collapsed which historically has always given something like two quarters before we start to see gdp fall also it's a good indicator normally before three quarters before you start to see the high yield defaults come through so that's the first thing credits tight there money supplies collapse now i'm not a monetarist but you know tim cogden they rolled him out on the radio the other day 
he, you know, he would be sort of saying that we're pointing towards deflation because money supply has gone negative. And then another chart, obviously, is excess savings. You know, excess savings by January um, are going to start to dissipate. Uh, and so we're in that sort of last three months. And even historically, from the first rate hike, we'd have only had one recession by that by now. That was 1980. The kind of all the recessions would be occurring between now and 2025. So we're kind of entering that danger zone where credit's getting tired. Um, and so unemployment at the moment remains low because the excess savings is still there. I went, I went out to the States, I went to LA, I went to the Taylor Swift concert. That was $5 billion worth of pumping into the, uh, into, into the US economy. And that's just per- people burning through excess savings. That's going to disappear at some point next year. Things are going to start to get tougher, I reckon, from March to August next year. So we right. just... We're, we're continuing to watch that that unfold. There's a lot to unpack there, not least the fact that how flash are you going to L.A. to watch T-Swift? But I want to park that idea as well. Um, I'm very jealous, I hasten to add. Um, the senior loan officer's opinion survey, plus the high yield, uh, what I don't think are actually anywhere near the heights that they should be compared to history, and we can unpack that as well, plus those excess savings coming down as well. There is a really comfortable, fluffy marshmallow world out there called Goldilocks and uh, and a landing path to not having recession. Everything you just said by putting those factors in, Bryn, says to me that that, that is pie in the sky. Just just break it down. Are you expecting a meaningful recession rather than that fluffy, marshmallow, comfortable, cushioned world? Well, look, you can't get to a a, a blowout without having the soft, cushiony landing first, right? So, you know, it depends on... It depends on the 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 action, the Fed's reaction, the central bank's reaction. You know, we're only one through quantitative tightening. Um, so you know, we we've never been into a, a rate hike cycle like we've been with quantitative tightening before. Not that I'm not in my experience. So we don't know what that looks like. So it's really difficult to say when the recession hits. Which I think, you know, from my perspective, the probability is slightly higher than less. Um, but it's that that reaction function from the central banks that, that we see will, will be key. So it's very difficult to tell, but I do think we will enter some kind of recession. And the speed that it hits is quite important as well. You know, we've got non-farm payrolls today. They've been on a you know, they've been on a slightly downward trend over the last year or two. Yeah, you know, 170,000 is being forecast. That's still pretty reasonable. Anything below that's going to think start to think that trend's continuing. Um so, 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 yeah, I, I'm not in the camp that we have a complete crash. I mean, the, the banks are much more solvent now. Yeah. You know, they've got three or four times the solvency of GFC. Insurance companies have got huge amounts of solvency and they can pass on a lot of credit losses to policyholders. So I don't think it will sort of emanate in the financial sector, albeit, you know, yeah. they will feel some of the pain because of the beta risk and, you know, and the, and the pickup of, 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 um, of losses. Bryn, let me, let me ask you then, why is the market only believing the central banks now, though? I mean, it, it feels as though the central banks had been speaking about higher for longer, whether we agree or not to something else entirely, but believing that they would become uh, uh, central banks that follow that higher for longer sentiment. And now only the market seems to be believing them. Why, why didn't they believe at, at in the past was it because they called inflation transitory before and now had a bit of doubt 
No, I think it's the transmission mechanism has been much slower. In the US, they're much more beneficial with a 30-year mortgage, you know, even though it's 8 or whatever percent it is, you know, their average rate 3.6. In the UK, 50% of the housing market's now, now owned up, right? Everyone was extending um, when rates were low, so they pushed it out five, seven years. So that transmission mechanism kind of through the housing market has been much slower. Um, as I said, we've all had excess savings, so it didn't really matter. We could just go out and do what we liked. Um, but also my sort of Halloween chart is uh, you, you should get it up. I don't know if you can get it up today, but, you know, the US um, US credit card rates. And in the 80s, they peaked at about 18 percent and they dropped down to about the low of 12 percent, um, you know, past post GFC and just post um, um, COVID. Uh, the chart's just scary. I mean, credit card rates now in the US are 21 percent and it's just an exponential uh, growth in credit card rates. Credit card rates in the UK are 24%. That just shows you how much lending is tightened to the householders. So at the moment, they were all right. You know, perhaps delinquencies are picking up. Default rates are ticking up a little bit. They're well below sort of normal levels. But when something breaks, that sort of kind of, that kind of almost opposite of gearing, you know, the fact you've got 21% people, you know, if you lose your job, how are you going to pay your credit card back, right? So I think that whole transmission mechanism started to started to to, to 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 appear. The lag, which we know takes, I think the lag's been longer. And as I've said, you know, previous recessions we've only had one from the first rate hike, albeit these rate hikes are the fastest in arguably since the 1700s. Um, that's going to have an effect at some point. Um, and, and 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 you know, as you say, as I said, as you said, is it going to be bad? Is it going to be slightly bad? Something's going to happen. Um, we just don't know how bad it's going to be. Uh, and Bryn, I've just I, we've got to wrap it up there. But keeping credit exposure and IG non-cyclical shorter than ten years as well. Maturity wall for HY high yield a worry next year. Um, so we got a few ideas there as well. Um, Bryn, lovely to see you. As I say, any time you want me to pick you up, I'll, I'll probably whip past Oxted at about three fifty a.m. Then you can sit around the studio with me and Arabile. <laughs> anyway, well, just an idea. Like you can pick me up um, on my way in. I'll pick on, on the way, way and then you've got to get the train back, I'm afraid. Uh, Bryn, I'm uh, <laughs> just like a poor man's car company. Uh, Bryn, I'll, uh, we'll speak again soon. Lovely to get some ideas and thanks for waking up like, moderately early for us. Uh, Bryn Jones, Head of Fixed Income over at Rathbones. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.